Well, good evening, friends. It's good to be with you again and carrying on with our look through the second chapter of First Timothy. This morning in verses 1 to 7, we looked at an aspect of the order of service and the importance of prayer. Tonight, we continue from verse 8 to the end of this chapter, where we'll be looking at order in the church itself. But let's read the passage as a whole before we begin, just to set the context and remind ourselves of the apostles' words. This is 1 Timothy 2, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of God. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is only, for, sorry, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Therefore I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly and de with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. For women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Amen. May God add his blessing to this reading from his word. Let's ask his help as we look at these verses in a bit more detail together in prayer. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for every good and perfect gift that is given to us by your open-handed generosity, and none more so than your word. We come before it now with tremendous gratitude for the blessing that it is and all that we can learn from it. And we come before it eager to hear what you would have us learn from it today. We pray that you would prepare our hearts, Lord, that they would be permeable and receptive to the truth that your Holy Spirit inspired and will, we pray, unpack for us this evening. Prepare also our minds, Lord, that we may understand what you are teaching us and that we will discern how we can apply it in our situations so that we may witness adequately for your purposes in the places that you have called us to. Teach us, Lord, that we may grow in our relationship with you and bear the fruit of your Spirit amid the relationships that we have with other people that they too may come to know your goodness, faithfulness, salvation, and sanctification. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> the story is told of a perfect man who met a perfect woman. They had a perfect courtship and then a perfect wedding. Their life together was, of course, perfect. One snowy, stormy Christmas Eve, the perfect couple were driving along a winding road when they noticed someone standing at the roadside in distress. Being the perfect couple, they stopped to help. And there stood Santa Claus with a huge bundle of toys. Not wanting to disappoint any children on the eve of Christmas, the perfect couple loaded Santa and his toys into their vehicle and soon they were driving along delivering the toys. Unfortunately, the driving conditions deteriorated further and the perfect couple and Santa Claus were in an accident and only one of them walked away. Which one of them was it? Well, the answer is usually the same, although the reasons why depend entirely on who you ask. If you ask a woman, then often the response is that the perfect woman must have survived, 
because the other two people in the vehicle, and in particular the perfect man, don't exist. If you ask a man, then the response is usually agreement. Because if there's no Santa Claus and there is no perfect man in the car, then the perfect woman must have been driving, which explains why there was an accident in the first place. Ladies and gentlemen, women and men, how different we can be and how much that difference is accentuated and played upon by the entertainment industry of our world. Even while a contradictory narrative builds which tells us that gender is an artificial construct and that there is no fundamental difference between the sexes. Which is correct? Well, what does the Bible say? If we look at this passage in 1 Timothy 2, then it's clear that God created the sexes and did so in a distinct manner. It's clear from these verses that there are crucial differences between men and women. And that's what we find when we turn back to the account of the creation in Genesis 1 verse 27, which reads, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. But notice the beautiful truth in that same verse, that both are made in the image of God. Both are equal in value and equal in worth. And whenever we approach the powder keg issue of the roles of men and women in the home or in the church, as our passage this evening will speak into, we need to begin with that reminder for ourselves of the inherent value of every single human being. As equivalent of our status is in the eyes of the Lord, however, that doesn't mean that he has the same purpose and the same instructions for each sex. And this is the subject that Paul approaches now. The apostle is continuing in his teaching on the life of the church and the subject of the conduct that should be maintained in communal worship is found in verse 8. It says, Therefore I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Well, it's important to begin by addressing that word want in verse 8. Make no mistake, this is not some separate private desire that the apostle is harboring here. He's speaking as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's speaking with the authority uh, of the Holy Spirit who is directing the words that he writes. And his message, therefore, should be treated as a command. And his authoritative command is that the men of the church be actively involved in prayer. Where are they to do this? They are to do this everywhere. This is a universal commandment for worship wherever and however we meet. In accordance with what we learned at the top of the chapter, every place of worship is to be a house of prayer. The posture is not so important as it might seem here. Scripture includes references to those in prayer bowing as one gives honor to a king, kneeling in an expression of humility and reverence, face down on the ground, awestruck by the glory of Almighty God, or standing, demonstrating respect in the same way that a courtroom will rise when the judge enters the room. None of these is considered especially more appropriate than any other, and so it's best to view this demand of verse 8 to lift holy hands as speaking of our purity in prayer rather than what we do with the shape of our bodies when we offer them. The apostles' instruction is a reference to Old Testament temple worship, where God's people would consecrate themselves with hand washing prior to engaging in prayer. Clean hands in this practice symbolize a pure heart. And applied to the Christian prayer life, the implication is clear. The most appropriate way for us to come before the Lord to make petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving is with a heart that strives after the holiness and the righteousness of our Savior. 
Now, this isn't just a suitable approach to prayer for a man. The same applies to women. But the male-specific aspect comes in Paul's naming of one particular impurity that was causing issue in the church in Ephesus that Timothy was leading. And that is the sin of discord and dissension. Hence, the apostles' instruction to pray without anger or disputing. The Ephesian church is beset with quarrel. Angry words are flying around everywhere. False teachers are active in their midst and they're creating controversy and fracture in the Christian community through the myths and endless genealogies described in chapter 1. And the constant friction caused impedes that correct attitude of prayer. Now, this kind of anger and argument are not the sole property of men. Philippians chapter 4 verse 2 speaks of a dispute between two ladies, Euodia and Syntyche. And then a few hundred years later, a woman called Jenny Geddes infamously threw the stool she was sitting on at the head of the minister of St. Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh in protest at the first public use of the Scottish Episcopal Book of Prayer in Scotland. They reckon that may have been the catalyst for a cascade of events that led to the English Civil War. So women are not incapable of disturbing the peace, and they're not incapable of disturbing the peace in church. But it is far more likely to be the men who agitate and quarrel, particularly over issues of doctrine. <clears throat> we had Calvinism and Arminianism this morning. That's been a source of disagreement for over 400 years, and not a woman in sight of the initial conflict. But men have that capacity, don't they, to be competitive, to be slow to listen, to want to be right more than they want to be reconciled with one another. And so Scripture reminds Christian men not to fight. Now, of course, I'm sure that we could all name half a dozen, a dozen, maybe many more men that we know that are gentle and placid and wouldn't say boo to a goose. And that may well be true, but just because there are exceptions to the rule doesn't mean that the rule isn't insightful or valid. This is God's message to the men of the church. And he knows how the sin that infected us back in the Garden of Eden has impacted the male line of humankind better than anyone. And he knows the damage that it does to the prayers of the church. Prayers made when bitter and resentful are just unpleasant. When we are encouraged to offer all kinds of prayer at the beginning of this chapter, sour prayers are not in the apostles' thinking. Reconciliation, then, is crucial. Because if the power of our prayer is connected with its purity, as we are reminded in James 5, verse 16, which reads, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective then the men in the fellowship can only lift holy hands in prayer and expect an answer when their relationship with their brothers in Christ is right. It's okay to disagree, but when that disagreement is complicated by the anger that hampers us from being peacemakers, that's when we need to be convicted by this instruction. Of course, it's not just men who are addressed here either. Reading from verse 9, it says, I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. I'm no dedicated follower of fashion. If you need any confirmation of that fact, speak to my wife who often despairs at my choice of clothing and my reluctance to deviate from a palette of navy blue, charcoal grey or burgundy. I am therefore underqualified to offer any advice on clothing choices. But happily, as we move into the ninth verse of this chapter, it's the apostle that shares with us uh, the, what's in style for the female believer at prayer. 
Now it's fair to say that Paul's teaching here wouldn't be popular on the Argyle Arcade or on the catwalks of Paris or Milan because he is critical of unnecessary beautifications and embellishments. And it's easy to read this verse and assume that that might have been relevant in ancient times when everyone but the super rich wandered about in sackcloth, but that it's out of fashion today in a time when everyone has a higher standard of appearance. But this has always been a countercultural command. Ephesus was a wealthy city, and luxurious living there included the practice of women having their hair intricately braided and festooned with jewelry as it was styled. And it wasn't just the rich that would dress in such ostentation. Prostitutes and courtesans would too. The local temples dedicated to the Greek goddess Artemis would be encircled with them, and their appearance was designed to draw attention and interest. Now we can see why this wouldn't be ideal for a Christian assembly, seeking to bring their prayers to God when he has competition for our attention. Not only is this distracting for others, but it raises questions about our motives in approaching prayer too. Have we really prepared our hearts to come before the Lord if our choice of apparel is designed to draw attention to ourselves? For this reason, Paul exhorts the women in the Ephesian church to modest dress and decoration. In doing so, he urges his sisters in Christ to stand against any imitation of the sexually immoral and also to shun demonstrations of material luxury. Now, there's no catalogue of appropriate outfits in here that the discerning sister can fill her wardrobe in. The apostle isn't telling the women of the church explicitly what they should wear, but he is telling them how they should wear it. He isn't emphasizing an attire, but a demeanor that informs its choice. He reels off this list of positive virtues, modesty, decency, propriety, and appropriateness. At the heart of this list is practice of humility. It's shunning the opportunity to make much of ourselves. The word that we have translated as decency speaks of feminine reserve and matters of courtship. And it's the opposite of the idea of being dressed to kill. Propriety is soundness of judgment. It's restraint. It's mastery over self. And all combined, these present the right state in which women must come before the throne of grace. This isn't a demand to dress in a dowdy manner. It's an urging to have more focus on and more concern about the God that we are lifting our hands to than what our outward appearance might achieve. Again, there are exceptions to the rule, and there are also men who are equally fond of fine clothing and who dress to impress. In Joshua chapter 7, when Achan brings punishment on Israel for plundering goods from the conquered city of Ai, what is it that he steals? Silver, a gold bar, and a beautiful robe. In 2 Kings 5, when Naaman comes to Elisha to be healed of leprosy, what does he bring to try and pay for the prophet's services? He brings silver, he brings gold, and he brings ten sets of clothing. Now, I can't see you right now. I don't know how you dress, which is quite liberating in preaching from these verses, to be honest. But who takes the longest to get ready for church in your household in the morning? Who owns the most jewelry? Who spends the most on cosmetics and fragrance? Who spends the longest looking and shopping for clothes? It is generally speaking the ladies. Hence this specific instruction toward the women of the church. But none of those pursuits are necessary. God isn't interested in outward appearance. He's interested in the heart. He says as much to Samuel when he is looking for the son of Jesse that he will anoint as Israel's next king in 1 Samuel 16 verse 7. 
But before the gents are able to get too comfortable here and start rolling their eyes at the efforts of the ladies who want to make themselves look good, the reality is that we are an enormous part of the problem. Because our fallen, broken, sin-stained default is to assess and evaluate women by how they look. It is men that enslave women to their appearances. And so verse 10 isn't simply a reminder to women that their greatest asset that they possess and that their most powerful statement to the world comes not with attire but with good deeds and loving service. It's also a reminder to men to stop encouraging women to overlook this truth because of our failure to view women as God does. Beauty in a Christian woman is seen in her godliness. She is made more beautiful, more attractive, more desirable by what she does rather than by what she wears and how her hair is done. If you're a young Christian man watching this broadcast and you're looking for a wife, then this is the beauty that you must look for above anything else. Because the prettiness that young ladies bear now will diminish with an aging process that cannot be stopped or reversed. But her works and her service, the fruit that is the palpable evidence of her faith in Jesus Christ, allows her to become more beautiful with every passing day. And if you are a young Christian woman looking for a husband, then make sure that your suitors are seeking your inward beauty, for then they will be enthralled by the daily increase in what you both consider your greatest quality. reading from verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Okay, here comes the really fun part, the really controversial section, and I've left myself about 10 minutes to cover it. So among my disclaimers at the outset here is that I'm not going to be able to go into the depth that I would probably like to here, but I still hope to communicate what the apostle intends for the remainder of this passage in that time. I would also like to state at this stage that although I have complementarian theology, that is, that I believe in distinct roles and authorities for men and women, that it wasn't always the case. In fact, when I went before the Board of Ministry at the Baptist Union of Scotland, I was asked about my thoughts on women in leadership. I had spent next to no time exploring the issue and truthfully affirmed that I didn't have any issue with it. Just about every job I've ever had, I was line managed by a woman. Why should the church be any different? Since then, however, with a bit more study, I have become a complementarian by conviction. I'm pleased that having to go before the board again at the end of my accreditation, I get the chance to update them on my journey on this so that I don't look like I was too scared to be honest about my thoughts first time round. But I'm even more pleased that I can come to this passage with clarity of conscience and know that I'm not unpacking these verses in the way that I'm going to in order to confirm a personal opinion that I have always held dear. But that's one of the dangers in coming to this short passage, isn't it? There are a few of them. We need to be careful that we don't allow the voice of our culture to drown out the command of Scripture. And we need to avoid being unduly influenced by church history because it is God's Word that is perfect, not the living out of that Word by His children. I think I've maybe wasted two of my ten minutes now, so let me carry on with a reminder of where we are and what we've just seen in the context of the Apostles' teaching. He's instructing the church to pray, and he's instructing the men and women of the church how to pray in the gathered fellowship. The men are to avoid engaging in angry quarrel and must exercise self-control, and the ladies are to do so with a demeanor of respectability. And the focus of Paul's exhortation hasn't changed. 
for all that this passage can be taken in isolation and is regularly used in argument and debate in isolation, the apostles' words continue to instruct in the way that we are to carry ourselves in a worship service. And the specific instructions for women continue into these next verses. And this is countercultural stuff. This destroys conventional thinking. Not the worldview of the 21st century West, but the landscape of the first century Palestine. Because it begins with instructions on how women in the church should learn, and that is a total departure from everything that has come before. In the Greco-Roman world, women were considered to be intellectually poorer than men, and educational opportunities were extremely limited for women as a result. The view of the Jewish religious leaders of the time was even more scathing. In John Stott's commentary on 1 Timothy, he includes a quote from the Jerusalem Talmud, an authoritarian text for Jewish rabbis which says it would be better for the words of Torah, that's the book of the Jewish law, Genesis to Deuteronomy and our Bibles, it would be better for the words of Torah to be burned than they should be entrusted to a woman. But the message here is very different. The message here is in fact the total opposite. Not only that women may learn the deep things of the Christian faith, but that they must. A woman is made in the image of Almighty God. She therefore has a mind, and as such she is required to become a lifelong student of biblical theology. How quickly and easily this bit is skipped over to look at the limits of a woman's role in the life of the church without seeing this freedom and with it the expectation of every sister in Christ. You see, the arguments against what is coming that paint a picture of the Bible as being imprisoned by ancient patriarchal attitudes about men and women don't stand up in view of this. Nor does this ridiculous caricature of the apostle as a chauvinist. You know, the guy that sends greetings in his letters to women who are ministering in the church across the region and who affirms what they are doing as good. The guy who is burdened by the Spirit to include in his writings for the churches instructions for how women should learn in the assembly. We can read these words off a page and we can have an instinctive negative reaction to them because not every verse of Scripture is easy to love at first sight. But the conviction that what we have here are the words of a God who loves us more than anything and values us so highly and so equally means that we need to persevere with them and get to the bottom of what it is that they are saying. Paul writes, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Quietness is an improvement, I think, on the 1984 NIV's translation of 1 Timothy 2.11, which says that women should learn in silence. For quietness has a feel to it that's closer to the understanding of the Greek word that it's translated from. It signifies a, a respectful tranquility. It's the same word that we find in Acts 22, verse 2, when Paul addresses the crowd after his arrest in Jerusalem. It's the very quiet, tuned-in approach that the multitude applied to the apostle when they realized he was speaking in Aramaic. It's not a demand here for women to keep their mouths shut. It's a call to pay undivided attention to the speaker. And full submission goes alongside that. Full submission is an instruction to yield to authority. It means to respect the calling and the gifting of the teacher and to receive their exposition and their encouragement in a spirit of acceptance. Now, submission is not a popular concept in the Western world. Too many people consider it to be an oppressive notion that curtails independence and freedom probably because too many people have used it as an excuse to abuse power and to cause mental, physical, and spiritual harm. But it's not intended as something negative here, and we see that when we qualify the instruction. 
Because the people that women are asked to submit to are the leadership of the church. It's the people who, will, who, who meet the qualifications and criteria of eldership that God willing you will be looking at next week. It's gentle servant leaders whose ministry is to protect and to shepherd the flock. Nobody is being asked or expected to submit to a domineering tyrant. And that submission is not limited to women in the church either. For the men of the church must come in the same silence and with the same reverence and with the same submission to the same people if they are to learn too. One of the toughest things about lockdown for me has been having to teach my six-year-old maths and English every day, especially while my preschooler son runs about without a care in the world. And he's going through a really loud phase just now as well. And so it's easy for me to see that there is a, a learning environment that is far more conducive to getting work done and information being processed and retained and that is a quiet and a submissive rather than rebellious environment. Not only, therefore, does the apostle insist that the women of the church come under the teaching of the word, not just to hear but to learn, but he also urges us to set the conditions to maximize the impact that it will have on us. Let's move on to verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. However, while this passage opens the door to learning, it closes it for a specific type of teaching, and that is the authoritative proclamation of the word in the context of the public worship service. We could go through a handful of other texts about the prophetic ministry of all of God's sons and daughters in Acts 2, and examples of women teaching men in other situations, including in the household of Timothy himself growing up, Texts that demonstrate that a total ban on women teaching in any context at all is not biblical. But suffice to say at this moment that the framework of this whole letter, addressing the issue of corporate worship, is speaking in particular of the exposition of Scripture there for the official teaching of the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And the reason for that restriction is because the activity exercises authority, which is not given to women over men, in the assembly of the fellowship. Why is that? Why are women denied the opportunity to have a position of authority in the church's spiritual leadership? Is this another accusation of educational inadequacy or a lack of competence? Not at all. The basis is found right back in the creation account of the book of Genesis. Reading from verse 13, the apostle writes, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. And here we are, right back where we started this evening, in the first chapters of the first book of Scripture, where we're reminded of the distinctions between men and women and the distinctions of the roles that each have been made for. And what Paul pulls, sorry, what Paul pulls out of those chapters for us is the reminder that Adam was created first and Eve second. Why is this important? Is it a statement of superiority? No, it isn't. All are made in the image of God. We all have equal value. There is no suggestion that Paul is indicating some kind of male supremacy. He is instead making a statement of our purpose. In the ancient world and in Scripture, we encounter the law of primogeniture. It's the law that places a spiritual responsibility for the family in the hands of the firstborn son following the death of his father. Whether the most worthy, the most capable, or the most proficient or not, he would inherit the responsibility of leadership over the home and the family. He would become head of the house. 
Adam, being the firstborn son of the Lord, as he is so named in the genealogy of Jesus in Luke 3, verse 38, is given that responsibility. Not once sin had entered the world and the wheels had come off humankind's relationship with God, but beforehand, before sin was anywhere to be found, while creation was still perfect, while Adam and Eve lived in an ideal world, Adam was given that authority. He wasn't given more value than his wife. He was simply given this authority as God's best plan for humankind. This is the order of creation, set intentionally by God, and our culture of worship of that God has no mandate to change what he has laid down. We must honor his will and his desire. Now, some scholars read verse 14 here and assume that the apostle is blaming Eve for the fall. And it sounds plausible on first reading, but it doesn't stand up, does it? It only works as an explanation if Paul's point is that women shouldn't preach on issues of competency, that they cannot be trusted to maintain orthodox theology. But that idea doesn't stack up when we consider the situation that he is writing into. How many problems in the church in Ephesus have been caused by men teaching false doctrine? He has already had to warn the men of the assembly of the inappropriate approach to prayer while they harbor such animosity on these issues. So the apostle knows that men cannot be trusted any more than women can. If anything, this reference to the fall of humankind emphasizes the the lack of worthiness of men. Because yes, it's true, the woman was deceived, but where was her husband when that was happening? He was standing right next to her. He was watching and he was listening and he did nothing to stop Eve as she ate the forbidden fruit. Why did he stand there and ignore a talking snake when he should have known better, when he had already been up close and personal with every creature that God had made? Why did he stand there powerless to stop what Satan Satan was leading his wife into? The answer is simple. He didn't want to because the knowledge of good and evil, because being like God appealed to him too, and he walked right into that act of disobedience with his eyes opened. So you see, the authority that is bestowed upon men that isn't bestowed upon women has nothing to do with capability or aptitude. It has everything to do with God's decision to set Adam as the spiritual representative of the human race. That's why he is the one that God asks about what happened in the garden with the serpent and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis 3. That's why he is held principally responsible for the calamity that ensued. That's why Romans 5 speaks of the many who died by the trespass of the one man. Paul doesn't show his sex to be better equipped or to have more merit for the responsibilities of spiritual authority, but he shows that it is their responsibility nonetheless. But we are not called to a hopeless existence because our first spiritual leader failed in his duties. There is hope for sinners, which we find in the final verse here, verse 15. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Well, if verse 14 takes us back to Genesis 3 and brings to mind the reality of sin, then verse 15 keeps us there and reminds us of the promise of deliverance from it. That the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the enemy and win victory over sin and death. It may not be immediately obvious to us because our English translations of the Bible tend not to translate the definite article in verse 15 here concerning childbirth. 
And so they usually speak of childbirth in general rather than the childbirth, the bearing of a specific child, Jesus Christ, God's own son. The act of bearing young will not pay the price of our transgressions before God. No act or work or task that any of us can complete will overcome the wrongdoing that we have committed and that we will commit. And while we are still responsible for it, then we are under God's judgment and we are headed for destruction. For the wages of sin is death, spiritual death, eternal separation from God the Father. But because the child was born, because God the Son, though he is fully God and equal in status with his Father, because he submitted to his Father's will, took on flesh and came to this earth and laid down his life on the cross of Calvary for that sin, then we need bear it no more when we come before him with repentance and in faith. Is this passage anti-woman? A passage that describes true female beauty? A passage that invites and instructs women to learn? A passage that apportions the blame for the fall of humanity to the first man? And a passage that reminds us of the crucial role of women in the coming saviour of the world? Judge for yourself. But I don't think so. If you're a woman watching tonight, I pray that you will meditate on your value to God this evening. If you're a man, then I pray that you will resolve to take your responsibilities of spiritual leadership in the home and in the church seriously. But above all, I pray for all of you that you will soon be back in your church building offering all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people and all for the glory of God our Savior. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your words and for your passage from it. We pray that your Holy Spirit will continue to minister to us through these words in the coming days and that you will help us to see beyond the controversies to the beauty of your love for your creation and to the authority that you wield in shaping our world, our relationships, our home and our church according to your will and purpose. Father, thank you for Jesus, for the solution to our sin, and for the way to spend eternity in your presence. Hear our prayer as we offer it in his name. Amen.